Hello and welcome to Spirit Pig. This is the show that explores how to live a fulfilled life. I'm Duncan CJ and today I'm speaking with Daniel Pinchbeck. Daniel is the author of Breaking Open the Head, a psychedelic journey into the heart of contemporary shamanism. Also, Notes from the Edge Times and 2012 Return of Quetzalcoatl, as well as his latest book, How Soon Is Now. He's the co-founder of the web magazines Reality Sandwich and Evolver.net, and his essays and articles have been featured in the New York Times Magazine, Esquire, Rolling Stone, among many others. And he's also written columns for Conscious Living and Dazed and Confused, and is invited to speak at conferences all around the globe. Daniel, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I know that one of the influences were some of the ideas of the late Buckminster Fuller. What in particular of Buckminster Fuller inspired you to write this? Um, yeah, well, Buckminster Fuller uh, was a design scientist, uh, 20th century hero. He created the Judaism Dome and all these other amazing inventions. Um, he wrote a few books in the 60s, uh, short books that are still really relevant. One is called Utopia or Oblivion. Another one is called Operation Spaceship Earth. And back then, he kind of realized that you know, we had the technical ability and the resources to make the world work for everybody on it while supporting, you know, the community of life and the planet's ecology. But we were trapped by our political and economic structures, ideologies. So he felt we needed like a profound design revolution to liberate our, our technical capacities to help humanity. And uh, that's basically what the book is all about, trying to think about what that design revolution would be comprehensively, like what it would mean in terms of our you know, technical systems, energy, industry, farming, what it would mean for political and economic systems, and what it would mean for consciousness, like culture and media and ideology and so on. And I know that you kind of, if you look at the state of the world, you turn, you turn on the news and it's, it's, yes, we are at a crisis point, but we can view this not necessarily as sort of doom and gloom, but perhaps as a sort of rite of passage or initiation for humanity as a species, isn't it? That's one of the main ideas of the book. I mean, my whole, a lot of my work is one of the main focuses has been kind of initiation. And uh, if you look at all these tribal and traditional societies around the world, they always have these initiation rites, rites of passage that separate kind of the adolescence and the immature, you know, members of the community from being adults. And um, our kind of, you know, we've kind of dismissed the knowledge of these traditional societies as uh, and their ways of doing things is not very important. But I actually think we're in a kind of initiation crisis in a way. Like, you know, if you look at somebody like Trump or something and, and all the people that he surrounded himself with, it's kind of like unbridled greed and self-interest. It's me, me, me. It's this focus on, you know, the, 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 you know, like sort of, you know, control and power and so on. I think that, you know, in a way is because we've lost initiation. Like they didn't have to go through some type of process where they, you know, recognize that they were responsible for the larger community. And, and, you know, it may be that these initiations are not just cultural uh, events, but actually almost have a neurophysiological function and that like, um, you know, we have the neocortex, which is the part of our brain that makes us distinctly human, which just developed in the last hundred thousand years. And that's how come we can use language and plan for the future. But it also means that we get easily locked into kind of, um, you know, an ego based identity. And unless you have transpersonal visionary experiences, you don't have a larger sense of yourself as like maybe part of a cosmic hole or something like that. So, yeah. So I think the ecological crisis in a positive sense could be seen as an initiation or rite of passage for humanity. We need to break through our ego structures and our kind of uh, the systems that we've created, which are really dysfunctional at the moment and uh, come up with something better. Yeah. We, I mean, it's, it's very easy. I mean, it's often like sort of ancient traditions and myths and are often sort of, 
dismissed or thought of as not, not relevant today and but it's it's probably the complete opposite like, have, you, have you read some joseph campbell before yeah totally i mean i talk about him maybe i mentioned him in the book i mean he he looked at initiations as being this kind of like three-step process three-stage process where you know you know particularly men but also young women also be taken out they'd be separated from the community they would have to go through these ordeals or take ayahuasca or peyote or do fastings or sun dances and then they would be uh, there would be a return. They would be welcomed back into the community, and the knowledge they had gained would be recognized as, as valuable for the for the tribe's continuation. Yeah, and I mean, 150 years ago, the idea that you know we could fly was laughable. I mean, it was like you know it was seen as ridiculous, and yet you know we figured that out. And whenever we have these sort of, um, I think you talk about when there's enough um, sort of energy and excitement behind an idea, it doesn't matter how grand or big it is. You know, whether putting people on the moon or like the Wright brothers, when there's an excitement and a drive behind an idea, then anything can be figured out. Anything is possible. And so do we need to take that same sort of mindset to these big sort of issues which are facing us today? Yeah, you, you got it. That's exactly the idea. And in a way, like we've become very used to innovations and technologies and industries and so on. We don't think of evolving our, our social systems uh, and our ways of relating to each other, you know, in the same way. And so I'm very intrigued by all sorts of experiments that point towards ways we could redesign our you know, systems, you know, even in terms of relationships. Like there's a whole section on love and relationships and community that proposes that maybe you know, monogamy is, is a limited construct that we've gotten sort of trapped into. Well, you're actually talking about the idea of like monogamy and um, how we might be using outdated things. You know, this whole idea of like the nuclear family or monogamy, like maybe that's fine for some people, but by saying that this is the way then maybe that's actually almost quite damaging for people where it's not an authentic expression of who they are. Well, we, yeah, we know it's you know, problematic. I mean, if we look at the U.S. election, you know, Trump and his philandering and his comments about women and Hillary Clinton's husband, Bill Clinton, and his philandering and you know, all these sex scandals that erupt with these you know, major political figures and power figures. I mean, it seems that one reason that you know, men seek power and wealth is to have sexual access. And, um, you know, as long as that's the only way for that to be achievable, then men will keep trying to, you know, control and, and, and dominate in that sense. You know, so the alternative would be a different culture, a different understanding, you know, between the genders around sexuality. And I looked at that in particular in relationship to a community in Portugal called Tamara, that was started by German radicals who were part of the left in the 60s and 70s. And they tried to understand why these kind of utopian yearnings of these movements uh, failed. And as they began to explore it, they realized that it was like these issues of love and sexuality and jealousy and envy and possessiveness that ultimately were like very deep political issues that society couldn't address. So they kind of stepped outside of society and sought to create a different uh, social model based on, you know, non-possessive, transparent uh, relating with a lot of social tools that allow, you know, the communities and the individuals in it to kind of mediate uh, these alternative structures. Yeah, to, uh, Tamira is a fascinating place. I, I visited it in, um, in August. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah, I went, well, went there in August. And they, what do they say? There's, um, there can be no peace on earth as long as there's so much war between the sexes and how, yeah, it's, 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 absolutely fascinating place I, I spent two weeks there just to learn and understand like of you know th their, their ideas and their views um yeah absolutely I'm gonna, I'm gonna fascinating. try to go back to their love school in may maybe you should come <laughs> so you're, you're going in may are you 
I'm going to try to. I don't know if I can make it, but I've, I've been to a couple, one of their love schools, and it was really fascinating. I mean, it's actually a place I really want to spend more, more time in because I really believe in what they're doing. I mean, in some ways, they're kind of – I mean, it definitely feels like a laboratory. Like, they're very interested in developing this very certain kind of a line. Um, uh, and it, you know, for some people, in some ways, it's actually kind of old-fashioned. Like, the music is kind of like folk music and so on. But in a way, yeah, it's like, it's like these experiments are necessary to create something new – and their idea is that if there were a few, you know, working models like Tamara, it becomes something like, um, like a new template, you know, for more, for more, for more parts of, uh, the culture to, to adopt. And I'm seeing that in New York too. I mean, a lot of experimentation now with alternative relationship patterns, like a general realization that it's not really working out. Uh, you know, and, and obviously we see it with younger kids, the millennials, like the hookup culture and Tinder and all that stuff, but it's, but it's not a social you know, it's not a, it's not a social redesign. Like you have to think about how children are taken care of, right? Cause one reason that women, you know, prefer, uh, strongly monogamy is they know that if they have children, it's like an 18 year investment of time and energy and you need to have a support structure for that. So they look for men who can create that support structure. But if you had a community that was able to hold child, child care, you know, as, as a community responsibility, then women are also much more liberated to, to, you know, pursue their own, you know, uh, you know, ideas and, and plans and, and so on develop themselves. Yeah. It's fa fascinating, fascinating stuff. I actually bought a, I bought a camera guy and an audio guy with me and actually, um, filmed like a, um, haven't edited yet, but I've, um, started filming like a mini documentary about the place and actually interviewing the founders and cover their views on kind of what they were trying to achieve. Um, yes, yeah, hugely interesting subject. Um, yeah. you, you've said that the sort of current, political economic system that we live in keeps everyone in a state of artificial scarcity. What do you mean by artificial scarcity? Well, I mean, um, the economic system is founded on competition. I mean, money is created by debt and it's created in a way that it creates winners and losers and um, fear and scarcity. You know, so if you go to a bank to get a loan, the bank issues you the loan, they create that money, but the, but the interest on that loan isn't created. So you have to then go and compete against everyone in society to bring back the interest. It's like our, our society is basically founded on a kind of doggy dog competition model. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, there could be a different way of organizing things like, uh, but, it, but it would require, yeah, like changes in, you know, the, the instrument that we use to exchange value. In the book, I talked about different ideas of, of alternative currencies or, or different ways to exchange value. You know, one idea is to have like um, a negative interest currency, like a trading currency that's global that actually loses value when you try to hold on to it. So instead of hoarding it, you want to circulate it uh, when you have it. The ideas of, um, I think there's the Italian philosopher, you talked about um, Antonio Negri, and he talks about the production of subjectivity. And we don't think about it, but subjectivity is actually something that is fairly produced. How so? <laughs> Good. Yeah, I can see you studied uh, hard. I really appreciate that. It's exciting. <laughs> Um, yeah, sure. Well, in a sense, like, um, you know, capitalism and consumer culture and the media, the corporate media is, is very powerful instrument of, uh, you know, indoctrination and it essentially creates, you know, constructs people's consciousness and subjectivity in a certain way. You know, so every day they're waking up and they're listening to TV and the radio and they're being told what to buy, you know, how to respond to authority, you know, what types of relationships are acceptable, and so they, you, you, you internalize that, you integrate that. And, and, the, and the system is very clever because it even integrates ideas of rebellion. You know, so it's like you're, you're, you're made to see yourself as a rebel. You know, now, for instance, like the, the alt-right, you know, was very clever in the U.S. 
at creating this kind of rebel um, ideology. So people are, you know, it's like, oh, this is the new punk rock now to be to be right wing. But they're not recognizing that they're actually falling into a trap of this control system because that ideology benefits you know, a, a, a small oligarchic elite who you know, can then manipulate a society for their own ends. So, you know, so subjectivity, I mean, I think like, you know, Terrence McKenna said that culture is our operating system. Mm. Like, you know, we're, we, we can't use language without creating story or, or operating on myths. And as human beings, we're, we're based in myth and story. Like we can't even open a door or go across the room unless we have a story underlying what we're doing, you know, unlike an animal, which just like hunts and, and seeks nourishment and, and rest and so on. So the, the governing stories and myths are really crucial for how, how our society works and operates. And I believe some of those stories and myths have kind of reached their end point where they're just, they're just, they're not serving us anymore. They're just very destructive. And we have to think about what are some of the new governing myths or stories that would, you know, help us create a, a more holistic and healthy planetary culture. Talking about like the, those stories and the, I don't know, I guess the spread and the dissemination of these ideas and stories, like you think that what is necessary is a very powerful counter media what would that look like in your mind well i mean that's you know my ideal would be and i don't know how this is going to happen but there needs to be something kind of like a cnn or fox news on a global scale that's focused on you know what can we do together what are the solutions you know what are the practical tools you know like um the, the media that you know one, one way that it controls people's responses is by being very fear-based so you're always seeing you know, what's, what's horrible and, oh, we got to be scared of Muslims, you know, we have to be scared of war and, you know, and so on. So, yeah, so I think, you know, on, on a large scale, ultimately we need some alternative media system. And obviously there are lots of little counter media efforts going on, like, like yours and a million others. But, but you know, at the moment, the, 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 the mass consciousness is more shaped by these more negative uh, programming. Yeah. No, I've, I've when, when I when I when I saw about counter media, I mean, like, I I totally agree that something like that is needed, a whole new sort of system, and it's it's interesting because when you were talking about the um the prefrontal cortex, but like it was our our ancient brain is I think about at least like sort of ten times more drawn to fear and danger, you know, because you know like, I don't know saber toothed tigers, and so like it'd have to be like at least ten times more power and more money and more push behind it than just this negative media so it's, it's a huge effort but collectively if there's i don't know if there's enough i don't know it's, it's such a tricky one because you need like we're so drawn to that negativity the gossip magazines the like the war the famine and so this is then just fed and feeded by you know the fox news is because they know how you know we're so drawn to it and so yeah it takes a big effort to get that sort of counter media going I, I i i'm i would love something something out there i'm i'm with you there <laughs> so yeah what you're talking about is the amygdala, the amygdala which is like our flight and fight response mm. so the way the media you know keeps people addicted and hypnotized is by constantly like hitting you know on the amygdala um you know we're sort of working on people's lower instincts and um um yeah and that's sort of you know fits in with this whole idea of initiation that people became more kind of self-aware, more able to go into like a witness consciousness. So they're aware that they're being programmed and what the programs are. Then, then they have more of the, you know, inner fortitude to kind of deal with it and, and choose something else. Yeah. I found it absolutely fascinating. Um, 
learning about one of your, um, I think he's one of your favorite thinkers, Walter Benjamin, who died during the Nazi era, and um, about his views on the reasons for events like the First World War. Um, would you mind sharing those? No, of course not. I mean, um, yeah, well, so he, between the wars, he wrote about how he felt that humanity had this internal need. Like we have a push, something about us, like we push towards the edge, we seek intensity. And ultimately, I think it's this this yearning for transcendence, for, for something outside of the normal. And the problem is that that can either be constructed through you know, culturally prescribed kind of positive ceremonies and rituals, like, um, you know, like these initiations that tribal people do, or without those, it becomes something that happens more unconsciously through like destructions, through wars and violence. And I, once again, I really feel that's happening. You know, I can feel the, the U.S., kind of has, has fall, fall, fallen into kind of like a, a collective psychosis or, or a hypnosis or a trance that's seeking some kind of cathartic release, maybe through destruction or violence or war or something. Whereas if, if, if the younger people were guided through a process of becoming more aware of, of their own, you know, psyche and of their own desires and, and given a, a different story about who they are, they would have a very different outcome. Yeah. So there's this kind of innate in us, all of us, this need to, I think, co-mingle of cosmic powers, I think is how it was put. And I just love that, that idea of like, there's something and we just need, uh, yeah, that connection. Yeah, you got it. I mean, that, that's, that, that's what uh, Benjamin uh, talked about. And, um, you know, and, and in the book, I suggest that maybe even the ecological crisis is something that we've subconsciously created for ourselves um, to bring about some type of cathartic uh, transformation. Mm. Yeah. Something that you know to be the case um is that we and this is i, I guess yeah, this would be an interesting one to talk about is that we possess tremendous psychic abilities as human beings why do you feel that well that's something that i didn't you know i, I grew up as a scientific materialist and a skeptic so i didn't really believe i mean i thought that consciousness was just based on the brain but then in and, and as i discussed in my first two books uh, breaking open the head in 2012 you know, when I began to visit tribal societies and go through initiations and psychedelic, you know, shamanic experiences, it sort of opened up my own psychic about abilities in a way. Like um, I began to have like tons of synchronicities and kind of other crazy things just happen, like telepathy or, or precognition or shamans would beam into stuff and tell me things about my past that they couldn't have known through ordinary channels and even even more occult um, phenomena and so on. So I began to realize that, you know, what all these mystical traditions and occult traditions talk about is really the case. Or, you know, really, I, I shifted over to like Carl Jung's way of articulating that there's a kind of collective psyche, there's a collective unconscious, there are these archetypal forces, that there's a psychophysical connection between our inner self and the larger world. And that's what very much what a lot of these traditional cultures believe and talk about. And um, yeah, so maybe... Um, you know, we're pushing ourselves into this crisis as the only way that'll force us to, you know, actually um, access our, our latent capacities or mm. psychic abilities. Yeah, I, I've been I've been watching, um, following some of the stuff um, and some of the work of Dr. Dean Radin, and I know that you've um, you've mentioned him, and I think your reference was how Dr. Dean Radin describes it almost as like our current knowledge of parapsychology could be compared to our knowledge of electricity in the late 18th century. How, what, what, was the, what was that connection? Well, I mean, we forget, like, you know, first of all, it's incredible, 
you know, we, we discovered electricity in the late 18th century and we, it took a number of generations of experiment. Like first they were like, wow, this is like a super powerful force. And they didn't know how you could store it or channel it or transmit it or make use of it. And once we figured that out, we were able to, you know, change the whole nature of the planet, like geopolitical, you know, sort of, sort of the geophysical nature of the planet through our industries and our technologies and so on. So yeah, the idea that Dean Radin suggests and other thinkers have also suggested is that maybe the next threshold of, or the next form of energy that we're going to figure out how to make use of is, is psychic energy. And at the moment, you know, we know it exists, you know, but we don't have any way to, to, to reliably make use of it or, or, or access it. And so, yeah, so once we can figure that out, then, it, yeah, it would potentially open you know, up this whole new wave yeah. of, yeah. There's, there's great evidence. Like you can see videos of um, Indonesian masters of chi who can like throw people across the room with their energy or, you know, through different like Taoist practices. They learn how to like, you know, kind of amass a lot of the, the, the energy and then they can heal with it or, or cause electrical shocks or whatever. It's quite amazing. So. Right now, when you, uh, there's, I mean, there's obviously, you look around and you can, you can, if you look for stuff to, I don't know, there's countless stuff that could be, get you down and be despondent, but there's also stuff to be excited about. What is exciting you when, in your research or your work? What, what's giving you hope, optimism, excitement? Well, I mean, it's pretty much a lot of what I included in the book, you know, these different experiments and, and possibilities. Um, you know, it, it does, I mean, it does feel like, a, you know, there's a lot of uh, gloom and doom right now. And I, and I do feel, you know, the more that I look into what's happening with the U.S., uh, you know, takeover of the government, it does feel like a resurgence of, of something very close to neo-Nazism or neo-fascism. And, um, you know, I'm concerned that we're going to have to go through another very, very dark and destructive phase that could lead to a lot of loss of life and God knows what, you know, I mean, uh, so it's a, it's a worrying time, but, you know, I, you know, I stand by the, the theories in the book that maybe it has to get to this critical level so that we, you know, make these changes that, that you know, we're, we're capable of. What does a fulfilled life mean to you? Uh, well, I mean, personally, I mean, I'm somebody who feels like very driven by having like a mission in a way. And, um, you know, the, the, the work has definitely been my mission. What gets me up in the morning and keeps me excited about, about being alive and, um, you know, I definitely feel that we, we, we are living in a time of tremendous transition and crisis and opportunity. So I think if, if we look at that almost as like, um, it's almost like we're in an incredible, you know, movie or video game. And, uh, you know, there's the possibility that we can get to the next level of, of the video game, which, you know, might involve things like extraterrestrial contact and, and interstellar travel and, you know, the development of our psychic abilities. But, but first, you know, we need to address the situation that we're at right now. And uh, the only way to do that, I think, is to you know, break out of our you know, tendency towards detachment and distraction and say, like, OK, like this is actually something that I care about really deeply. You know? What is one thing all our listeners can start doing today that will have a positive impact on their lives? Well, in the book, I mean, I, I put down a lot of ideas for what people could do. I mean, I feel like, first of all, you know, understanding the situation is really necessary. And that's really why I felt the book was necessary because I felt like on the side of the left or the progressives or cultural creatives, like, you know, we don't really have a coherent 
sense of what we all want to do together. You know, like what's the world that we want to make together? What does it actually feel like and look like and how would it operate? So I felt we needed that. Uh, so we need to have a shared understanding, like coherence. And then we also then, you know, individually, community building is really important. You know, um, connecting people who share the same values, uh, reaching out to people who don't share those values, uh, sort of realizing that we have to reduce our use of resources in, in the next period um, to ultimately create, you know, more of a society that, that would be good for, for everybody. Um, so, but, and everybody has their own individual path, you know, so depending on their skills, like some people are media makers, some people are lawyers, some people are gardeners. So, you know, each person has to, um, follow their own Dharma in that sense. Yeah. Last but not least, how can people find out more about you and your work? Where can we send them? Uh, there's a website for the book, how soon is now.info. Uh, they can join for the mailing list. Uh, I have a Twitter account. I'm on Facebook. They can follow me. Uh, pretty receptive. People get interested in the ideas and write me, you know, emails or whatever. Uh, yeah, I guess those are some of the ways. Pitchbeck.io is my original website also. Daniel, thank you so much for speaking to me today. I really appreciate it. <laughs>